Hey friends, listen, are you exhausted mentally, emotionally, or spiritually? Do you feel like no matter what you do, it's just not good enough? Or do you feel like you're constantly tripping over yourself trying to keep up with what you should be doing? I'm raising my hand and nodding my head yes right along with you for all of it. Today, I sit down with Joel Mutamale and we talk about God's original intent for us when he placed Adam and Eve in the garden. Joel Mutamale serves as the director of theology at Proverbs 31 Ministries. He is married to Brittany and they have an adorable family. They have three boys, Liam, Levi, and Lucas, and they're expecting their little girl any day now. Joel holds an undergraduate degree in biblical studies and a master's degree in psychology. He is currently a Ph.D. student at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary with an emphasis in theology. Joel's passion is to teach the Bible and to help people see how possible it is to unpack the depth and beauty of God's Word and experience its transformative power in their lives. I'm Julie Holmquist. Welcome to Kairos Moments, episode number three. Hey, Joel, thank you so much for being on the podcast, Kairos hey, Moment. Yeah. Hey, I'm so excited to be on. Thanks for the invitation. Yes. I wanted to have you on. I knew I had to have you on when I saw one of your Instagram stories and you had mentioned a scripture. I think it was Genesis 2.15 and the nuance of that scripture talking about rest and how we operate or we work from a place of rest. Can you kind of go a little bit deeper into that? When did you get a revelation of what that scripture was like for you? Yeah. So one of the things that I love to do is um, an area of study in theology called biblical theology. And uh, what we're doing is we're looking at the Old Testament and we're seeing how the Old Testament is really setting seeds uh, for us to see come to fruition in the New Mm -hmm. Testament. Mm -hmm. And then likewise, we're looking at the New Testament and we're saying, hey, where are there echoes or illusions or um, development that has been laid foundationally that, that, you know, the writers of the new Testament are really building off of. Um, And so I am, uh, you know, my dear friend, uh, Lisa Turker. So I work with, um, she has gotten me addicted to Genesis uh, one, two, and three in her book. It's not supposed to be this way. The biblical theology around it is really rooted in um, those passages, those chapters of Genesis. And so I've been in Genesis quite a bit and uh, 2.15 what actually got me was not at all the rest, but this idea that God takes Adam and Eve uh, and he places them in the Garden of Eden. And then that word uh, in the end of 2.15, to keep, is the Hebrew word samar. And so my kind of infatuation with this verse started with that, where that's the exact same word that's used to uh, in Hebrew to describe guarding or protecting. Mm-hmm. Um, it's actually used in Chronicles 9.23 when it talks about the priests who would guard the holy of holies it's used in nehemiah eleven nineteen, when it talks about the watch keepers who would keep guard um of the gate you know against enemies and so adam and eve were actually placed in a position um as a type of high priest uh, in order to guard and protect the garden city eden and that's really what first got me uh kind of excited about this and i was asked about six months or maybe eight months ago Uh, to teach uh, a workshop on biblical creativity. Uh, I began to speak with some of my friends who are creatives. 
And they just described this constant hustle and this passion and this drive. And right beyond that was a sense of exhaustion kind of simultaneously. And uh, it was really interesting because there seems to be not just for them, but for me, this loss of the idea of rest and Sabbath. And so uh, I kind of turned to the first place that we have an description of rest and it's God who rests after these uh, incredible days of creation. And as I was studying these passages, I was really taken back because um, one of the things that we find in, in Genesis 2.15, the word put uh, that's translated there in English for us is um, actually the Hebrew word nuah. Right. Um, and so uh, when God puts Adam into the garden in Genesis 2.15, um, he doesn't, uh, the writer Moses, he's not using the usual word for put, which would be shum. And so this is, again, whenever we use uh, Hebrew language and we see something that's in there that's just little intriguing, it's curious, why would Moses use Nuah and not Shum? Um, mm-hmm. We begin to want to ask some questions. And so as we get into it, and as I dug into it, it was intriguing to me that uh, the days of creation have taken place, right? So as we right. read in Genesis chapter 1 and in 2, and in Genesis 1 verses 28, it says that God blesses Adam and Eve. He uh, tells them to be fruitful and to multiply. And the way that the scene plays out, it seems that the creation work has been done. And then in Genesis 2, God looks around and says, hey, um, this is all really good. And so in Genesis 2, God rests and says, verse 2, on the seventh day, God finished his work, um, all that he had done, and he rested. And so when we look at that Hebrew word for rest, and then when we look at the word that's actually being used here in Genesis 2.15, we actually can look ahead to Exodus 33 14, um, which is uh, another description of a promise. And we can just kind of turn there uh, really quick. Genesis 33, uh, 14. And uh, this is again, Moses. And he says uh, to his people, uh, based off of what God says, God says, if your presence uh, will go with you and I will give you rest. And so there's this sense that God is going to be with his people. And when God is with his people, the result is, mm. is rest. Yeah. But when we turn just a couple, couple chapters earlier in Genesis chapter 20, verse 11, there's a recounting of the creation story that Moses does. And this is what really intrigued me. For in six days, the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. That Hebrew word for rested is again, nuah. And so Moses looks back on what's taking place in Genesis 2.15, and he has this real understanding that what God does is he, he's resting after all of his created work. But then when we kind of take Genesis 2.15, and this idea that God places Adam and Eve into the garden city, and the word that he uses for put is the Uh, word that would typically be used for rest, it has this explosion of meaning Mm -hmm. because now we realize that Adam and Eve are actually placed and positioned in uh, a place of rest. Mm -hmm. And often I think we have this idea that Adam and Eve, I mean, right after that, right in verses 16, he gives, God gives the command and um, there's this great commission to go forth and to multiply uh, and to go to the ends of the earth. And we think that there's a lot of achieving that has to be done, right? And the goal, the benefit, the um, 
the reward that you have at the end of all the achievement would be rest. But that is so totally opposite from the biblical picture that we find in Genesis chapters 1 and 2. In fact, God does all of the work that needed to be done. God gives Adam and Eve this special mercy. And this special mercy is that they get to see God in his place of rest in Genesis Mm -hmm. 2. And after they witness God resting, God takes them and places them in the garden in a position of rest. And so they're working, they're achieving, they're doing uh, in light of God's great commission is not to do to gain rest, but it's actually to do as a result of the rest that they've experienced that has been divinely given to them by God himself. Um, And so then we get to Genesis 3, and Genesis 3 is really a disruption of divine rest. And so when Genesis 3 comes into place, humanity now begins to do things opposite from the way that God wants them to do it. And so now somewhere, somehow, we've got it in our minds that we have to do so that we can be accepted by God, so that we can achieve and experience the reward of rest. And yet God consistently as an echo and as an anthem throughout scripture is actually saying, no, just like what took place in Genesis 1 and 2, I have done all the work that needed to be done. And in fact, I rest. And so in the context of my divine rest, I place you into the garden city. I've placed you into earth, into humanity, into the locations and the boundaries of your existence. This is Acts chapter 17 that Paul speaks about in the Areopagus verses 26 through the end of that chapter. The idea that God has actually uh, directed and dictated our steps. And he's done that so that we can work and we can do out of a place of rest. And when we compare and when we contrast that to the cross, um, I think it is profound because we realize that I don't have to do so that I can get God's approval. In fact, everything that Jesus did on the cross, um, it is fully sufficient and it is fully satisfying. And so there is something about trust and faith and hope that I have to place in the finished work of Christ. And simultaneously, there's this mystery and tension of, as a result of that, I do. As a result of my position as a son and daughter of God, I work. As a result of the fact that God has done the finishing work, I can partner with him in the work that he's assigned to me unto his glory that will ultimately be for my good. Um, and so that's kind of what happened when I dug into Genesis 2.15 and I saw this word here for put that seems out of place. Um, but I don't think it's out of place. I think it's actually perfectly positioned because it's supposed to draw our minds to this reality that Adam and Eve were placed in the garden and positioned in a place of divine rest so that they could work from that. Um, and when we work from rest, my goodness, uh, oh my we are left energized and satisfied. When we work um, to achieve rest, uh, we are left exhausted. Well, I think of two things. Um, when Jesus was baptized, his identity was his identity was confirmed before his ministry started officially, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's profound. It's like our identity has to be rooted in that rest of God's already done it all. And so we're working from that place. 
And like in Hebrews also, it talks about we need to strive to enter into that rest. So our Mm -hmm. striving is not to achieve and to accomplish. It is rather to enter into the rest. Yeah, it's to participate in the rest that has already been achieved. And so I think what our striving is, is our striving, the work that has to be done is to constantly lay down and fight against the Mm -hmm. false temptations that we have to do something in order to gain God's pleasure and his reward. And so I think that's maybe where that striving comes in is because we have to fight. I mean, scripture talks about fighting the sinful man, you know, and so there's this, this idea of, of, progressive sanctification, becoming more and more uh, like the image of Christ. Um, and so it, it takes work. It's not just something, it's easy, right? At some level, it's, it's frustrating because it feels like, man, that preaches well, but I don't know if that lives very well. The reason why I think um, it's, it doesn't live nearly as well is because it is a battle. It's something that we have to constantly remind ourselves of this truth. Right. So it's not a one and done scripture. Once you get it, it's like, oh, I'm, I'm good. I can check that off. I think it's, we have to wrestle with that temptation to say it's up to me. Yeah. And I think you nailed it though. I think we want one and done because we, we want the checklist. Yeah. We want to be able to say, I've crossed this off and then I moved on. I had a friend once, a seminary professor who became a friend. Um, we talked about the gospel and said, man, um, at times we're trying to check the gospel off and figure it out so that we can move on to the next thing, but there is no moving on from the gospel. The gospel is a continuous story of good news that speaks truth and life into our lives at every moment because our life is continually changing. So we experience the glories of the gospel in new profound ways. What did you post the other day? Something, tell me the quote about the river, how it's always changing. Oh yeah. I talked about the, yeah, yeah. I talked, I was actually reading a philosophy book and it was this, um, this Greek philosopher, Heraclitus, and he was talking about the river and he was talking a summary. Um, he basically says, you know, uh, you never step into the, into the river twice the same way. You know, it's always a different river. And I began to think about God's word and I'm always, I'm always marveling at how um, the word of God, it feels like I can hit a verse today that I've looked at like Genesis two fifteen read probably a thousand times yeah. and I came to it and I came away with something new and something fresh. And I think the imagery is the same as a river that um, it's the same river, right? So the, the word of God is, is the same word of God today, tomorrow, um, forever. Right. Yet when you step into a river, the water is always flowing. And so you never enter into that same river the same way because everything about that river has changed from the rocks to the water to what's in the water. I mean, all of that is changed. So the form is the same, yet it is a continuous moving, in a sense, living river. And that's what I think we have with the word of God. The word of God always stays the same. It is the same, yet our conditions, our experiences, our situations, and our circumstances are always changing. And so somehow the freshness of the nourishing word of God falls on us in a new way every time we dip our toes into it. This rest that we're talking about is not relaxation. It's not sitting back and just letting, you know, just case sarah, sarah. Right. But tell me what that rest looks like in like our identity. And then tell me what it looks like in our relationship with other people. Yeah, I think in our identity, um, there, the rest is that we know that, I mean, again, you go to Genesis 1, um, 20. 6 and 27, our identity is that we're made in the likeness and the image of God himself. 
Um, and so if we want to see who God truly is, we look at Jesus and Jesus is the visible representation of the invisible God. And, um, and so our identity is wrapped up truly in the person of Jesus. Mm -hmm. And so if we want to know what our identity is, we look at Jesus, right? And we see how Jesus yeah. talked and how he acted. Um, and there's also a sense that our identity is unique at the same time to each of us individually, because God made us not as clones, like this is Star Wars and everybody's, you know, clones running around, right. um, but God made us uniquely. And so somehow that identity in a mysterious and miraculous way flushes itself out where Julie, you're gifted in a, in a unique way to do the things that God wants you to do. And you do it out of this identity that you have in Christ. Um, that you're made in the likeness and image of God, that you are a daughter of the King, that um, you are different and that you're unique and that you're gifted. I mean, all of those things. Right. Um, and then in our relationship with other people, I think it frees us from this enslavement of trying to be somebody that is likable mm -hmm. and that can be accepted. And if we keep living our lives, and I, I just think back on like my high school and college days, oh, like, yeah. just desperate for approval, right. Right? right? Um, if we live our lives in that desperation to be approved by others, we will constantly be feeling like we've been defeated. Um, and yet when we live from our identity, this rest that we have in who Christ is and, and we can say, you know what God made, I might have some quirks. Like my laugh might be weird, mm -hmm. but God designed me that way. And so I think I'm good with it. Right. It's what right. makes me special and unique. Um, there's a freedom that happens within our relationships where we can embrace other people for their uniqueness and the way that God has gifted them. And we can release ourselves with the pressure of trying to be something that somebody else wants us to be. Cause guess what? The freedom that we have is that uh, they are not God. They are not the creator. They're the creature. They're the human. And yeah. so um, that's freeing to know that God is going to do what he does. And we just respond in light of that. I have a special needs son, and I often say that the mysteries of God are wrapped up in the uniqueness of who he is, because mm. we're all made in the image of God. And even with my son's autism and his mentally mm. handicapped, God's, is the word Imago Dei? Yeah, the Imago Dei, the image of God. Imago Dei, his, he was created in God's image, right? And so the mysteries of God are wrapped up in him, and I also think about you know, how God uniquely made us and we're able to, ex we're able to celebrate that. Just like you said, we're not clones. I think when we are in heaven with the Lord and, you know, the scripture in revelation that talks about, we're sitting around the throne singing, holy, holy, holy. I don't think he created us so uniquely to obliterate us at the end, mm -hmm. like your uniqueness on earth will be extended in heaven. And so it's like, let's, let's get to that place now and enjoy it now because that's who we're going to be later. I mean, yeah, minus the sin, the power of sin, the penalties and all of that. Right. But yeah. And I, I think that's profound and I think it's really important. Um, I wrote a paper uh, just a, maybe a year ago um, talking about the Imago Dei, the image of God. And in that paper, I argue that the image of God is not broken at the fall. Um, and essentially what I, what I suggest, what I think the scriptures point to is that the image of God, we have to view that as status and standard. 
um, the status. It is a gift that's bestowed upon all humanity, right? right. Um, there is no, it's, it's, it's mysterious because you're trying to wrap your, your mind around it. But um, your son is just as much 100,000% in the image as I am. Right. There's nothing broken in the image of God. Right. Um, and then when we talk about our, the standard, the ability to live up to the image of God that has been gifted to us, well, the standard after the fall is absolutely no longer attainable without Christ. And that's true for your son, and that's true for me. You know, so that there's no discrimination there. We are all in necessary need of Jesus and his finished work and the spirit of God. And how that looks in our lives is different for your son as it is different for me. And yet God is merciful and gracious. And so I think we have to reclaim a biblical view of the image of God. Mm -hmm. And we have to also see, um, you know, we haven't even talked about this, Julie, but in California, while I was bivocation, I was a bivocational church planner. I, my day job, like I worked with adults with developmental disabilities. I actually have a master's degree in psychology mm-hmm. and um, worked um, day in and day out with um, adults with dual diagnosis, um, autism and, and some type of mental health um, kind of spectrum disorder. Yeah. And one of the things that I found uh, throughout my six years doing that is I learned more from these people who became my friends. I mean, literally my, yeah. just friends. Yeah. I learned more from them than I was expected to teach them something. Right. Um, and that is the, the, the important work of the image uh, coming out that uh, is so, so important for us to reclaim. Yeah, I think my son teaches me more about the character of God than I expect. Yep. And when we were living in Colorado Springs, we had Pikes Peak right outside our front window. Every morning for like six months, he would go over to the window and open the blinds and he would say, I see mountains. And I'm like, after like weeks of this, I'm like, yes, Andrew, you know, those are the mountains. They'll be there forever. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But then God was like, Julie, I want you to wake up every morning and declare, I see the promises of God, just like Andrew says that about the mountains. And it's like, because my promises are more sure than those mountains that you Mm -hmm. see with your physical eyes. And I'm like, yes, you know, so I fully believe that Andrew has, has affected and impacted many people because of his quote unquote disability. So that's fascinating. I didn't know you had that background. Yep. That's awesome. Well, Joel, tell people where they can find you on social media and your website. Yeah. So my social media is super simple because there aren't too many people running around my last name. So I was able to snag that uh, pretty easily. So it's just at, and then my last name is Mudamali, M-U-D-D-A-M-A-L-L-E. And I do uh, the majority of my teaching, kind of just uh, reflection and kind of theology stuff on Instagram. And um, so would love to connect with you there. I get often asked, hey, do you have a book or a Bible study or things that, that you've done? I do not. And um, I do, though, get to work uh, for an incredible ministry called Proverbs 31 Ministries. I serve as their director of theology, and I work directly for our president, Lisa Turker. So I get to be a part of the development of a lot of different resources that the ministry puts out. And then also I get to work on Lisa's projects. So Lisa has a brand new study called Trustworthy. Um, Mm -hmm. It's a study through First and Second Kings, and we look at some of the kings uh, in the Old Testament 
And um, we kind of do a study through this idea of trust and who is the only trustworthy one. And I actually had the opportunity to be in Israel with Lisa um, as she filmed and recorded and we studied out there. And so I just think that this um, Bible study, it's through Lifeway. Uh, you can kind of find it at any of your Amazon or whatever stores. You can go to the Proverbs 31 Ministries awesome. website and um, grab that uh, study. And I think it, it's amazing. All right. Tell me one last thing. Sorry. I'm probably the girl of one last thing. <laughs> <laughs> the word theology just means simply the study of God, right? Mm -hmm. So tell me why someone would want to study theology. Because like a lot of people think, seminary mm -hmm. all of that you know you hear the the jokes about se seminary i went to seminary and i lost my faith you know right right and and sadly um sadly like it's a joke but it's also kind of real i'm like i'm a doctoral student right now okay. and just about a year away from finishing my um my dissertation and um you know there is something about it that is sadly uh, true and i think part of it is um, pride and hubris really sneaks in mm. when you get to a place where you think that you have owned or you have known God's word uh, to the full extent and you, yeah. and don't acknowledge that there's actually a real deep mystery um, and you approach it from a place of humility. And so I think that humble theology is, one, is, a, is a lost idea amongst many seminarians and theologians and pastors. And so one of my personal passions is I want to bring back humble theology. I want to make humble theology great again. Um, but the reason why I think everybody, you know, should be interested and intrigued and really devoted to theology is that um, God invites us to know him. Mm. Uh, that's why he gave us the scriptures. That's why he gave us accessibility to his word. We live in an, an, in an unprecedented age where um, you can literally, you know, go to Alexa and be like, hey, um, can I get the NIV translation or the ES? I mean, you know, like there's not even an issue. You can get access to original languages like never before. You don't even need to know Greek or Hebrew and you right. can get access to some of these definitions and dictionaries. Um, and so this is part of God's common grace that he has invited us to know his word. And yet as we um, attempt to know God's word, what we will find is that the word is actually knowing us. It's mm -hmm. finding us out. Um, it's searching us as much as we're searching it. And so it is a process of our discipleship. And so to the extent that somebody might do theology may look different, you know, but mm -hmm. I would, I would definitely argue and suggest and just plead with anybody that's listening that theology is for you. And if you say, well, I'm a mom, I'm like, yes, it's for you. You're like, I'm a student I'm in junior high. Yes, it's for you. Um, you're a theologian scholar, you know, I'd be like, definitely it's for you in the most humble way. <laughs> um, and so that, that, you know, hope, hope that answers it. Yeah. Ephesians 3.19 says to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God to know that, to know something that surpasses knowledge seems contradictory, but to know is one thing in our head to know it beyond that is experiential. And we need, we need yeah. that. So otherwise it's just black and white words on the, on a paper. I am so glad you joined us today on the podcast. I want to ask you a question. How, how will rest affect you today? As you go about your day, how will you think about the rest that God has provided for us, whether it's in our serving or in our identity 
or in our relationship with God and with other people. So just think about that today as you go through your week. Next week, I will have on um, my guests, Pete and Jordan Jones. They are the creators of the Daily Kairos Journal that I have been raving about. They are, I just love this couple. I love this journal. I love their heart. And you will too, as we get to know them. Hey, thanks for subscribing. That way you don't miss a single episode. Join me next week as we talk with Pete and Jordan Jones. See you then.